0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Julie Power. I'm a second year cardiology fellow and future chief fellow at the University of Minnesota affectionately known to us as the U. After completing General Cardiology Fellowship, I can't wait to dive headfirst into the cath lab as a future interventional cardiologist. I'm also proud to be a CardioNerds Academy fellow in House Jones, as in the legendary Dr. Edith Irby-Jones. Fellow nerds, thanks for joining us on this CardioNerds Cardio Obstetrics Cruise. We'll make several key stops along this comprehensive curricular journey. At the last stop in episode 113, we learned all about pregnancy and heart failure, and specifically peripartum cardiomyopathy with Dr. Julie Damp. Now join us for our next port of call at the Massachusetts General Hospital to learn about pregnancy and coronary disease with Dr. Melissa Wood. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Stay tuned for a special message about cardio obstetrics and women heart.
1: Hi everyone, I'm here today for another amazing episode of the cardio obstetrics series with the cardio nerds. Today, we're going to bring you some very important information on acute coronary syndrome and coronary artery disease in pregnancy. I'd love to introduce you to our fellow episode chair, Priya Kathapali. Priya is a current general cardiology fellow and future interventional fellow at UT Austin and a proud Cardio nerds ambassador. She's put together a great discussion for us all to enjoy today.
2: So welcome, Priya. Thank you, Natalie, for the introduction. And thank you, Amit, for having me. I'm Priya Kapapali. I'm a very proud CardioNerds ambassador, and I'm extremely happy to be here today for this episode. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Dr. Melissa Wood, our faculty expert. Dr. Wood is a cardiologist at MGH, where she is one of the founders and co-director of the Corrigan Women's Heart Health Center at MGH. She's authored two books, Smart at Heart and Influence, and she's made substantial contributions globally in promoting awareness of gender disparities in cardiovascular disease. She's the incoming chair-elect for the ACC Board of Governors, and is one of the leading experts in the world of spontaneous coronary artery dissection, otherwise known as SCAD. We're so excited to have you here with us today, Dr. Wood. Thank you for making the time.
3: Thank you, Priya, Natalie, and your team for inviting me today. And I really want to congratulate Amit and Dan for developing CardioNerds and for shedding light on this important topic today. I also want to remind all of the listeners, particularly those of us who've completed our training, that you can support CardioNerds at patreon.com. Dr.
2: Wood, it's so great to meet you. I've been following your incredible journey advocating for women's health and cardiology and want to thank you for bravely sharing your story and paving the way for those coming behind you. If you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about how you initially got interested
3: in the field of cardioobstetrics? Absolutely. I started my training now 31 years ago, and I recognized that there was very little data to guide our management of pregnant women with cardiovascular disease. What was written had primarily been in really three domains, um, the adult congenital heart space, where we did understand because of the large number of women with ACHD, we did understand some of the implications of pregnancy in ACHD. Also, in the area of connective tissue disorders, such as Marfan, we, we had a little bit of data to look at. And then finally, in the area of peripartum cardiomyopathy, there was a growing body of literature. However, all of the other conditions that can affect women throughout pregnancy really were poorly understood. And so I recognized also that many of my colleagues were quite uncomfortable caring for pregnant women who had cardiovascular disease. And on that backdrop, we really started working to expand the knowledge of the sex differences in heart disease and really build the area which has later become cardio obstetrics.
1: Great. Thank you so much. So as you mentioned, this topic is one in particular that makes most cardiologists uncomfortable. When a pregnant patient presents with chest pain, how do you differentiate between normal and abnormal? Can we use the same parameters as non-pregnant patients, or are there other things
3: to consider? So when we assess a pregnant patient with chest pain, I think as with other patients, the history is so critical. We have to ask questions about the setting, the characteristics, the duration, exacerbating and alleviating factors. And while women who are pregnant do experience, are more likely to experience GERD or some indigestion because of the expanding size of the the fetus it's quite uncommon for pregnant women to normally have severe, uncomfortable chest pain that kind of comes out of nowhere. So that detailed history is so important throughout the course of pregnancy, and especially following the time of delivery.
4: Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Wood. And just want to chime in and thank you again for being such an avid supporter of nerds And we're just so thrilled to learn from you in this very important topic, right? We see acute coronary syndrome presentations in pregnancy relatively infrequently, thankfully, and the clinical decision-making can be very challenging. But while ACS-complicating pregnancy is relatively uncommon, I've read figures of 1.7 to 6.2 per 100,000 deliveries, so pretty small number, I was surprised to find out that CAD accounts for more than 20% of all maternal cardiac deaths. So I get really uneasy thinking of the day I am on STEMI call and getting called into the emergency room to emergently evaluate a pregnant patient with chest pain. When you encounter this, what's going on in your mind? What are your initial thought process? And does the differential of acute chest pain change at all for the pregnant patient?
3: So when encountering a pregnant or postpartum patient with chest pain, I think at the top of our mind have to be those diagnoses that could potentially be fatal, and those would include an acute coronary syndrome or acute myocardial infarction, aortic dissection, or pulmonary embolus. But certainly, there are other etiologies of chest pain in the postpartum and peripartum patient, and those would include non-coronary etiologies such as Takotsubo or stress cardiomyopathy. Also, preeclampsia can present with chest pain, and peripartum cardiomyopathy can present with chest pain and shortness of breath. When we think about the coronary etiologies, which would include at the top of the list probably spontaneous coronary artery dissection, we also have to consider atherosclerotic forms of plaque rupture or plaque erosion, as well as vasospasm and other types of minoca or myocardial infarction, non-obstructive coronary artery disease, and coronary embolus or coronary thrombosis.
1: Okay, great. So of course, the traditional risk factors are still at play for coronary disease in the pregnant and postpartum patient, which it's still a relatively young patient population, but we're bound to see more with increasing maternal age. In fact, I was a little bit surprised to find out that with every year increase in maternal age, there's 20% increase in MI risk, which is fairly significant. But Dr. Wood, are there additional risk factors more specific to pregnancy that we should be
3: aware of? First of all, I just want to mention, Natalie, that being pregnant alone is a risk factor for myocardial infarction and that women who are pregnant have a three times higher risk of having an MI than other women their age. But when we think about factors besides age that contribute to the risk of pregnancy-associated MI, certainly the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and preeclampsia come to the top of the list. Also women who've had a complicated delivery with a postpartum hemorrhage who've required transfusion, patients with thrombophilia, patients who've used drugs such as cocaine, and also complications such as a postpartum infection can all increase the risk of myocardial infarction. And certainly for SCAD, we know some of the factors that are associated with the pregnancy associated SCAD include a history of multiparity, a history of infertility requiring fertility treatment to achieve pregnancy. And also, again, the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy increase the risk of SCAD as well.
2: Dr. Wood, thank you for sharing your thoughts to get us started. I feel like we've already learned so much. Keeping this in mind, I wanted to jump into our case. So we actually saw at our institution a 36-year-old woman with no significant past medical history who presented to our hospital one week postpartum. She complained of crushing substernal chest pain that started while she was actually breastfeeding her baby at home. She described the sensation as this pressure that radiated to her left jaw, initially 10 out of 10 in severity, and had associated nausea and diaphoresis. Her symptoms lasted for about one hour, so she did call EMS, and she was transported to the ED. She was given sublingual nitroglycerin with some improvement in her symptoms, and on arrival to the hospital, reported 2 out of 10 chest pain. Her initial vital signs were a temperature of 98 degrees, heart rate of 68 beats per minute, blood pressure of 139 over 65, and O2 sat of 96% on room air. Her BMI is 22. Given this initial story, what are you most concerned about in this patient, and what is your thought process in
3: approaching this patient? So, first off, Priya, thank you for that excellent and concise presentation. So we are facing or meeting a patient who's mildly hypertensive, who has an oxygen saturation, which I would say is slightly lower than I'd expect for a healthy young woman with no past medical history. Surprisingly, she's not tachycardic despite experiencing chest pain. So certainly the things I would be concerned about, as we've mentioned earlier, would be an acute coronary syndrome, pulmonary embolus, although I'm a little bit reassured by her normal heart rate, and also aortic dissection. Although she doesn't report any back pain, she certainly is having new chest pain, which is such an important thing to consider. So those would be at the top of the list for me. Thank you for sharing that. Her
2: physical exam was actually pretty unrevealing. She had um, no acute distress, normal cardiac exam with regular rate and rhythm, S1, S2, no murmurs, rubs, or gallops, and two-plus distal pulses in all extremities symmetrical blood pressures and no evidence of lower extremity edema or calf tenderness. And just to go into her initial labs, she did have a troponin elevation of 0.24 with a rise to 0.64 on repeat at four hours. Her BNP was within normal limits and creatinine and electrolytes were also within normal limits. Her hemoglobin was 10.6 on discharge one week prior, it was 9.8 and her TSH was within normal limits.
1: So our presentation is uh, quite worrisome so far, but just to clarify before we go further with this, is a positive troponin ever normal or expected in
3: pregnancy? So first of all, I will just say that any elevation in troponin should be investigated. There has been work done in looking at the high-sensitivity troponin, and those investigators who looked at over 800 patients who were peripartum postpartum found a very small percentage, like under 2%, had a slight elevation above the 99th percentile for troponin, and the patients who had hypertensive disorders of pregnancy were more likely to have a slightly elevated troponin. But again, let me emphasize, any elevation in troponin in a peripartum patient should be investigated further.
2: Great. Thank you. Moving on with her workup in the emergency department, the patient did have an EKG, which showed normal sinus rhythm, no significant ST changes, normal R-wave progression, and no Q-waves. The patient was treated with an aspirin and clopidogrel load and started on a heparin drip prior to consultation with cardiology for further evaluation. Dr. Wood, if you were on the receiving end of this phone call, what additional information would you like to help with triaging this patient? Should we give aspirin, clopidogrel,
3: and start heparin right away? The first thing that I would want to find out is whether or not although when she initially presented whether or not she was still experiencing chest pain, and I think my goal would be to try to alleviate that chest pain. I certainly think that treating her with aspirin and clopidogrel would make sense. I would try again to alleviate the chest pain with nitrates if possible. If she was having ongoing chest pain, I would even consider starting a low-dose nitroglycerin drip if she had a substantial blood pressure that would allow that With regard to heparin, I will say that in patients who are not pregnant and not postpartum who present to the emergency room with chest pain, even if we think remotely there could be SCAD, we will still treat them according to the ACS guidelines, which would include um, starting the heparin. In a patient, however, that has recently been pregnant or is currently pregnant, given the high likelihood that the patient could have SCAD if we think there is an ACS, which in this case we do given the troponin elevation, if the patient is clinically stable, I would take a pause and think about my next imaging step before starting heparin, given the concern that heparin can cause a spontaneous dissection to propagate. Again, this is somewhat of a departure from the ACS guidelines. and It's really only pertinent to this small group of patients we would see with chest pain in the ED, who probably have a fairly high likelihood of having SCAD. I would also strongly encourage the use of POCUS or point-of-care ultrasound to look at the left ventricular function, to look for focal wall motion abnormalities, to look at the right ventricle to exclude or to at least see whether or not there's any focal wall motion that you might, might lead you down the path of PE, and then also to look at the aortic valve to see if there's AI or any evidence of a dilated aortic root which could be present in the setting of a dissection.
1: That's a great point about considering imaging and kind of taking a pause before starting the anticoagulation. A follow-up to that is you're saying she has a high pretest probability for SCAD. Is that the fact that she presented one week out from um, her delivery, does that help
3: sway your differential at all? Does that make you more concerned, less concerned? Well, I know that with spontaneous coronary artery dissection complicating pregnancy or the postpartum state, patients are most likely to experience dissection within that first week and certainly within the first month postpartum. So it would probably be at the top of my list given this patient's presentation and clinical data.
5: Oh, so that's actually perfect. That dovetails into this next question. Our patient presented during the postpartum period, but Dr. Wood, what would you do or how would you change your management if the patient presented during pregnancy? Would your strategy differ? Would your pause for getting more imaging differ?
3: So Dan, thank you for that question. If she was still pregnant, I would treat her exactly the same because the key is to make the correct diagnosis and to treat whatever problem is going on. Certainly there are considerations that we would take thinking about the type of imaging that we would use, but I would still go down the same pathway. Thanks for sharing
2: that, Dr. Wood. I think we've already brought up a lot of very interesting and important points. Going back to our case, so when we did evaluate this patient, cardiology We felt that her non-invasive testing was actually an appropriate um, modality given her resolution of chest pain and stable EKG findings. We initially opted for a trans-thoracic echocardiogram, as you mentioned, to evaluate her left ventricular ejection fraction and wall motion since acute coronary syndrome and cardiomyopathy remained on the differential. And though echo isn't the ideal test to visualize the aorta, we also wanted to look at the ascending aorta, aortic root, and uh, look at the aortic valve for any pathology that would suggest dissection. In our patient, we had a pretty unremarkable echocardiogram with normal LV ejection fraction, normal wall motion, and normal valve function. And so the patient was admitted for monitoring and continued medical management for her NSTEMI.
1: In thinking about next steps to delineate the differential and further risk stratify, are there any considerations we need to make when ordering non-invasive testing, including stress testing
3: in somebody who is so acutely postpartum? Certainly, I think in someone who's both acutely postpartum and has had uh, a non-ST segment elevation MI presentation, I certainly would want to avoid stress testing at this point. And I think I would, given her clinical stability, think about the utility of CT angiography Um, In some institutions, such as in my institution, you can actually request in very select cases a triple rule-out CTA that would give you the ability to exclude aortic dissection, coronary dissection involving the proximal coronary arteries, or at least the areas we can see best, and also pulmonary embolus.
4: So Dr. Wood, earlier when Dan asked this question about how your initial approach would differ if the patient had been antepartum, you know, still presenting during pregnancy as opposed to postpartum, I love your point about how your approach wouldn't differ, right? Because I think that's the the pause that many of us take and makes many of us uncomfortable who aren't used to taking care of pregnant patients. So let me ask a related question. For patients who are pregnant, are there limitations on what imaging modalities you can use for an ischemic workup?
3: Well, certainly, I think in a pregnant patient, we would want to avoid nuclear imaging. We would not want to inject them with a nuclear isotope. But I think we can still do testing with CT angiography. We know that IV contrast, although it will transfer through the placenta, it is felt to be safe and, and has been done without any deleterious sequelae. So I think CTA would still be a reasonable testing modality to utilize. And I want to refer the listeners to an excellent summary on imaging during pregnancy provided by a on their website.
2: I will definitely be looking that up, Dr. Wood. Thank you for sharing that resource. I think this is a topic that makes all of us extremely uncomfortable, especially when we're making decisions about putting these patients through any kind of testing that could potentially expose a fetus to any kind of adverse effect. And so thank you for sharing that. You know, in our patient, unfortunately, she did have recurrent 10 out of 10 chest pain overnight. Her labs remained stable and her rhythm was stable also at the time of symptom onset. Her EKG did show these diagnostic ST elevations in the anterior leads, prompting an, a STEMI activation overnight and emergent left heart catheterization. What's your differential diagnosis when you get called about this? If the patient was still pregnant,
3: would you still activate the cath lab? So obviously at the top of my differential is an acute myocardial infarction with extension of whatever problem caused her to present in the first place. I would absolutely activate the cath lab, and I would certainly do that whether or not the patient was pregnant. How do you approach pharmacologic therapy in this setting
1: for heart rate and blood pressure control, as well as for angina symptom control? What medications would you use or completely avoid in patients who are pregnant, postpartum, and
3: breastfeeding? Thanks for that great question. And once again, I want to refer you to a source. I'm going to refer you actually to the Sex Differences in Cardiac Disease textbook that Nidhi Agarwal and I co-edited, and I think every fellowship should have a copy. There are some fabulous chapters on pregnancy, on spontaneous coronary artery dissection, and a whole chapter devoted to pharmacology in the pregnant patient. And there are some tables that are extremely helpful in sorting out medications that are safe to use in pregnancy and safe to use in nursing women. With regard to treating chest pain in a pregnant or postpartum nursing patient, I think it's important to remember that the mainstays of our therapy, including aspirin, nitrates, heparin, and beta blockers are all safe and can be used both in pregnancy again and in women who are nursing. In patients who require additional medication to treat their angina, in addition, obviously, to the ones that I've already mentioned, we can safely use nifedipine and verapamil. although, remember, in patients who are breastfeeding, they can be excreted into the breast milk but are still felt to be safe overall. With regard to DAPT, We can certainly use clopidogrel in a pregnant patient in addition to aspirin. However, it's important to remember if the patient is going to have neuroaxial anesthesia, such as an epidural, you are going to need to stop that if it's being electively used one week prior to neuroaxial anesthesia. And we like to avoid P2Y12 inhibitors, in particular clopidogrel is the only one that's really been studied. We like to avoid it in women who are nursing However, on select cases, it has been used in women who have fresh stints without any untoward effects, but some clopidogrel does make its way into the breast milk. I want to just remind everyone that it is unsafe to use ACEs and ARBs, doax We discourage lytics. You know, they have been used in rare cases in pregnant women, and statins should also be avoided in pregnancy. So those are important things to remember. There's no data on aldosterone antagonists, although we don't usually use those in this particular setting.
4: Thank you so much for such a comprehensive response, Dr. Wood you know, which medications are safe and not safe during pregnancy and lactation is something that, you know, again, we we all need to go back and refer to. And I appreciate you referring us to this wonderful book you wrote with Dr. Nithi Agarwal, Sex Differences in Cardiac Disease. I have to say the graphics in this book are absolutely lovely and so inviting. We'll put a link for this book in the episode description. Uh, So for our audience, definitely check it out.
3: I'm happy to say I just got my copy last week. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to give complete credit to Dr. Agarwal, who's just not only a fabulous cardiologist, but an incredibly talented graphic designer as well.
4: <laughs> we'll have to invite her to speak with our Cardi Nerds Academy folks, where we actually have a graphics and illustrations as one of the rotations.
5: I'm delighted to say that I just heard her. She came and gave a Grand Rounds talk at Hopkins, which was absolutely fabulous. And one of the ways that I actually discovered this amazing book So yeah, definitely got a great preview with her purview of such an important topic.
2: Thank you. So going back to our patient, so we did end up taking this patient to the cath lab. She underwent left heart catheterization via right radial artery approach. She was fully heparinized for the procedure and had already received a dual antiplatelet therapy prior to arrival to the lab. Diagnostic angiography demonstrated actually type 2 spontaneous coronary artery dissection involving the mid-LAD and distal RCA. There was TIMI-2 flow, which is considered sluggish flow into the mid to distal LAD, and TIMI-3 flow, which is considered brisk flow into the distal right coronary artery and the right posterior descending artery vessels. So I know
4: there are different types of SCAD. Can you speak a little bit, Dr. Wood, about these and, and how it impacts your management depending on the different varieties?
3: Absolutely. Um, First, I'd like to just say a couple things about coronary angiography in pregnant and postpartum patients. We know that in general, um, SCAD, patients who have SCAD are more likely to experience iatrogenic dissection. It it actually occurs in about 2% versus 0.2% overall. And we know that the risk is slightly higher with a radial approach. So if you think there's a high likelihood a patient is going to have SCAD on angiography, you may want to use the femoral approach. It's also helpful because if a patient destabilizes during the procedure and you have to use mechanical support, you already have femoral access in place. When I take patients or when patients I'm caring for go to the cath lab and they are peripartum or pregnant, I actually let the cardiac surgery and our shock team know in advance that this is a higher risk patient. We know that they have a higher risk of developing complications in the cath lab. As a former interventionalist, I also remind my colleagues uh, very gently that it's important to take subselective shots, use the minimal amount of contrast. I don't know if people still do a lot of biplane angiography, but this is a great place to do it because you can get two shots for the price of one. You really want to limit injecting dye into the coronaries in these types of patients. Now, with regard to the pathophysiology of SCAD, We know that typically it occurs due to expansion of the media of the vessel with hematoma accumulation. The actual biological trigger for that hematoma formation is still poorly understood, but certainly in the pregnant and postpartum state, we know that there is an underlying vascular vulnerability due to the excessive amounts of estrogen, progesterone, and the stress associated with pregnancy. Oftentimes, we will see in the type 2 that there is the hematoma accumulation, which results in compression of the lumen of the vessel. And remember, angiography is actually a luminogram. We're looking at the lumen, not at the wall of the vessel. A type 1 dissection occurs when that hematoma is actually released and the intima tears. And that type of dissection results in dye staining following clearing of the dye. You'll see residual dye. We actually break the type 2s into type 2a and type 2b, just to make it a little bit more complicated. In type 2a dissection, there's a normal segment proximal and distal to the dissection, and the dissection does not extend to the tip or the distal part of the vessel. In a type 2 dissection, the dissection extends to the tip. A type 3 dissection is a more tricky type of dissection to identify because that's a shorter area and it may mimic an atherosclerotic lesion. And that really requires use of intracoronary imaging such as IBIS or OCT to make a definitive diagnosis. And finally, there's a type 4, which is where there's complete vessel occlusion in the absence of coronary thromboembolism but you can demonstrate on subsequent imaging that there has been resolution of that obstruction. So again, those are a little bit trickier to to identify as well.
5: Dr. Wood, those were some great pearls regarding the patient who's high risk for SCAD and thought processes that you'd have in mind as you're heading towards the cath lab and also differentiating the different types of SCAD so that we can make the appropriate determination of what's going on with the patient when we actually have the angiography results. So how does SCAD relate to pregnancy? And is it more common with pregnancy? And are there other associated risk factors or comorbidities in the pregnant patient that would lead them to have a more likelihood of having SCAD?
3: Well, thanks for that great question. We know that with regard to all SCADs, pregnant patients and postpartum patients really are responsible for about 5 to 18% of the total cases. Thankfully, SCAD in general is quite rare. Usually less than, than two per 100,000 pregnancies are complicated by SCAD. As I would mentioned earlier, we know that pregnancy is somewhat of a perfect storm with vascular vulnerability and then the adrenergic surge associated with labor delivery and the postpartum state. And if any of you on this listening today are, are new parents, you know that there's a lot of sleep disruption that is associated with having a newborn in your home. And we think that that actually can contribute somewhat to disturbing the hypothalamic pituitary axis, which may also contribute to risk of SCAD. Now, factors that have been associated with an increased risk of pSCAD or pregnancy-associated SCAD include multi-parity, history of infertility, and preeclampsia. So patients with those features, we certainly recognize may be at higher risk of having SCAD. PSCAD is also associated with higher risk as compared to patients who have SCAD unrelated to pregnancy. And I want to really credit my colleagues, Dr. Sharon Hayes and Dr. Mauricia Tweet, who have done an enormous amount of work in this space, and their colleagues, dear friends, and just incredible investigators. They have demonstrated, as have others, that PSCAD is associated with a higher risk of left main and multivessel SCAD, and certainly a higher risk of cardiogenic shock and a higher overall mortality compared to non-pregnancy-related SCAD patients are more likely to require mechanical support and have a lower LVEF when they leave the hospital. So certainly, we want to make the right diagnosis in a timely fashion and treat these patients appropriately.
5: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wood. And we actually had the opportunity of talking to Dr. Sharon Hayes recently about SCAD and how she got into the business of advocating and really revolutionizing the education surrounding SCAD. And we had the real pleasure and privilege to do that with a patient who actually had SCAD and had multiple episodes of that. And so I just want to just ask you one follow-up question from me regarding SCAD. Now that we young cardio nerds are very, very, very educated about SCAD and we're looking for it and young woman, we're thinking SCAD. Is there a downside to overthinking SCAD? Can we pigeonhole ourselves you know, and, and have an anchor bias? Or it doesn't really matter because ultimately the treatments are going to become clear once you make the diagnosis.
3: Well, I think Dr. Hayes, Dr. Tweet, Dr. Saw, Dr. Kim, all of us who have been studying SCAD are so excited that the cardio nerds and your generation appreciate SCAD, recognize SCAD. I think that we really need to keep banging the drum and reminding our colleagues, not only in cardiology and internal medicine, but as well our colleagues in obstetrics and gynecology, that we need to take chest pain and shortness of breath in the postpartum, peripartum patients seriously. You've seen the data that's demonstrating the increased mortality in the United States in peripartum patients. And I think that unfortunately, many patients are sent home with chest pain or they have chest pain at home and don't realize that it's, it's something that they need to pay attention to. So a huge area that we are working to develop further is patient education. So when patients are discharged with that bag with the coupons for Pampers and the coupons for formula, they also have a, an educational pamphlet that says, if you experience these symptoms, call 911 or at least contact your medical professional. Because I think patients now need to be educated.
4: Dr. Wood, I'm so glad you're highlighting this important need to listen to our patients. That discussion that Dan um, is bringing up was included three women heart champions: Perthia Dennis, Alan Robin, who had had scad, and Brandy Taylor who during her pregnancy, she comes in with shortness of breath and she was told it's just a part of pregnancy or it's asthma or you've never been pregnant before, deal with it. And it turned out that she was essentially like borderline cardiogenic shock from peripartum cardiomyopathy. And Ellen Robin, you know, who developed SCAD at a time where nobody really knew about it and her physicians didn't know about it or understand it. The, the theme that kept on coming out in each of these women's stories was the feeling of um, being and feeling trivialized and people not believing that they had these real issues and real problems. And so they, on their end, said, Yeah, so, you know, our message to our other patients is to just feel empowered. And I think that that's the message they give to their patients and women heart is to feel empowered, advocate for yourselves, educate your doctors, and don't. Um, you know, don't, don't allow yourself to feel trivialized. And I think Dr. Hayes' response to that was, well, on the flip side, the onus is not on the patient. So hashtag believe her really, the onus is on us to, you know, to pay attention to the complaints and get to the bottom of it. And I think these play into some of the reasons why women don't get adequate diagnostics, don't get adequate therapeutics. And so, you know, this, this comes up over and over again, and I'm glad that you're taking the time to highlight that with us right now. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. So to just reiterate a little bit what you've already taught us about SCAD, it sounds like while pregnancy-associated SCAD is only about 5 to 18% of SCAD overall, these patients really do present with more severe disease and have worse outcomes. So it's something to take very seriously. And it sounds like that's due in part to this almost perfect storm of vascular vulnerability, As well as hemodynamic changes and adrenergic changes in that peripartum period. Now, let's move a little bit on to how you manage this patient. How do you manage patients with SCAD? In this patient, specifically with a type 2 SCAD uh, involving the mid LAD with TIMI 2 flow and a type 2 SCAD involving the distal RCA with TIMI 3 flow, are there any specific pearls that you can give us with regards to management there?
3: Sure. So first, I want to refer everyone to the scientific statement that was published. Dr. Hayes was the lead author in 2018 in circulation, and then also to the excellent update that was published in Jack this past fall by Dr. Hayes and others, which really summarizes the treatment. But I really want to emphasize, treat the patient, not the blood vessel, because if the patient is clinically stable, the patient can be conservatively managed if clinically stable and not in a high-risk situation. The algorithm, however, in patients who have left main or severe proximal disease, even in a clinically stable patient, suggests that you should consider needing to go on to other revascularization, such as a cabbage. but if, again, the patient remains stable, you may be able to manage them conservatively. Patients who have ongoing ischemia, cardiogenic shock, hemodynamic instability, you will Either want to do a high-risk PCI, consider even a supported PCI using potentially something like an impella or urgent cabbage. Remember, cabbage in SCAD patients is really a temporizing therapy that's allowing you to provide blood flow to the myocardium. because as these vessels heal, you will have competitive flow with your grafts, and those grafts then will not be available if it's a lema for later use. If patients have a very straightforward-looking lesion, and they are having ongoing symptoms, and certainly PCI should be considered. There are some technical tips and pearls that I will tell you if you do PCI in these patients. Number one, there is a higher risk of failure of PCI, so you want to make sure that the operator is comfortable and understands SCAD when they place the wire. If it's a long lesion, you want to seal the SCAD, so you'll either want a very long stent, or you'll stent proximally and distally, and then the center part of the lesion. Remember, however, that many patients with SCAD have tortuous coronaries. In fact, they're four times more likely than non-SCAD patients to have tortuous coronaries. So if you place a straight stent in a curly vessel, when that vessel heals, your stent will be non-coaxial, and that can cause problems in and of itself. So you want to treat the patient, look at all the symptoms, and look at the data, and make the right decision in full discussion with your interventional team.
2: Dr. Wood, I think those are so many extremely important clinical pearls. And just to reiterate, I think... The management of these patients with spontaneous coronary artery dissection can be extremely tricky, and it really is based on the patient's presentation, their clinical presentation, as well as their angiographic findings and the difficulty that would be um, faced by different types of revascularization. And so going back to our patient, we did proceed with percutaneous revascularization of the left anterior descending artery lesion with drug-eluting stent placement. This was in the setting of continuing chest pain symptoms. Though the patient was electrically and hemodynamically stable, she had persistent chest pain symptoms in spite of optimization of other parameters. We were thankfully able to wire into the true lumen and uh, place the stent and then achieve Timmy 3 flow, meaning brisk flow into the distal vessel with complete resolution of her chest pain. Given that her chest pain symptoms did resolve with the intervention on the LAD, we did not intervene on the RCA lesion. There was Timmy 3 flow into the distal vessel and the chest pain did resolve. And so we did not feel that there was any benefit to additional revascularization at that point.
4: Yeah, Priya, that's a phenomenal outcome after, I'm sure, what was very challenging decision-making. But uh, I am curious, so Dr. What I keep taking us back to this hypothetical scenario if this patient had been pregnant. So what considerations regarding delivery would you have to think about if she were pregnant post-PCI? How long should you delay delivery post-PCI? Does a route of delivery matter in that context? And how would you monitor this patient through delivery?
3: So That's a great question. Um, The European guidelines recommend waiting at least two weeks after myocardial infarction to deliver. However, as many of us recognize, babies don't always wait. The mode of delivery really depends on the maternal and fetal stability. If the fetus is unstable, if mom is clinically unstable, then certainly going on to cesarean section makes sense. We also do cesarean section in women who are actively experiencing ischemia. If someone's stable and is more than 2 weeks out, you could consider vaginal delivery, but remember you cannot if the woman if the patient is on a uh, depth, you cannot do neuroaxial anesthesia and pain control is incredibly important to reduce that adrenergic surge at this point. So Patients who are within a tight window of a recent infarct will often end up with a cesarean section, although we recognize in patients who are stable long after SCAD, we prefer vaginal delivery if possible.
2: That's excellent information to keep in mind whenever we see these patients. Thankfully, in this scenario, we didn't have to make those difficult decisions, and our patient was discharged home on aspirin, clopidogrel, and a beta blocker. Dr. Wood, I do have a question. Is there any role for statin therapy in this kind of patient?
3: So while there may be some theoretical benefit with the pleomorphic response that occurs with inflammation soon after infarct, most of us who manage a lot of SCAD patients do not use statins unless we would use them otherwise if a patient showed up in our clinic for a primary prevention. So if they have extremely high you know, LDL on the level of like FH-like levels or they're diabetic or have other atherosclerotic disease or other risk factors that would qualify them for statin, we would use them. But in a woman who's young um, of reproductive age that doesn't have any of those factors, I would avoid using a statin.
5: Now, Dr. Wood, our patient was diagnosed with SCAD and didn't meet criteria for statin therapy. But if a patient was found to have atherosclerotic plaque rupture during pregnancy, would you give statin therapy?
3: In a pregnant patient, I would not use statins acutely. And I think there is some data that statins can be harmful. As soon as the patient had delivered, I would then put them you know, on statins, reminding them that if they became pregnant again, they would need to be stopped.
2: And just to give an update on our patient, she actually did extremely well post-hospitalization. She was able to go back home to be with her baby. She's been following up with us over the last couple of years. She has a normal LV ejection fraction and has been stable on aspirin and beta blocker therapy after completing one year of dual antiplatelet therapy.
1: So Dr. Wood, I know that there's been a lot of increased research in this space with incredible data that we've been getting from all of the registries for SCAD. Is there any testing that you do for your patients um, for associated conditions once they've been diagnosed with SCAD, thinking specifically for things like FMD
3: or any sort of genetic testing? Sure. So following a diagnosis of SCAD, even in a condition like pregnancy, which we know may be the responsible condition that would put the patient at risk, we still do screen for FMD, and that involves CT angiography of the head and neck and the abdomen and pelvis, looking for other, either evidence of FMD or other extracoronary vasculopathy, such as dissections, tortuosity, or aneurysms.
4: Great. Thanks, Dr. Wood. Getting back to our patient, thankfully, she did very well. But here comes the tough part. And I think this is a question that comes up in almost every cardio OB discussion we've had. How do you advise this particular patient with regards to future pregnancies?
3: Shared decision-making. This is a situation where we do not have clear-cut guidelines and really a paucity of data. Thanks to Dr. Hayes and Dr. Tweet, we do have some data now. When they looked at data from the Mayo Registry and they looked at a total of 31 pregnancies in 22 women who'd had prior SCAD, two of those women had a recurrence and only one of those women had a recurrence during or right after her pregnancy. So really out of 31 pregnancies, that's only one recurrence during pregnancy. So I think that gives us some level of comfort. But again, we know that when pregnancy-associated SCAD occurs, it is quite complicated. So we take this very seriously. This is where our cardio OB teams and the team of experts really has its greatest value is in helping advise the patient and in helping care for patients when they become pregnant. We sit down and share with our patients the lack of data and the risk. We also look at their unique individual situation. Do they have a normal ejection fraction? Did they have a complicated SCAD? Do they have extravascular disease? Have they ever had a child? And these things all kind of are part of the formula that leads our discussion with the patient and helps us come up with a plan to manage them throughout their pregnancy should they decide to have a baby. But this is not a situation where we say we can clear someone to go on and have a baby. We just don't have enough data at this point to do that.
1: Yeah, I actually heard Dr. Tweet present this both at CPP and the Vancouver SCAD. And when she presented the data, I was like, oh, wow, that's really good. But then when she talked about how she still counsels her patients very conservatively and on an individual basis, I really, really liked the way that she contextualized the data in terms of uh, we still really don't
3: know. That's exactly what we tell our patients. We don't have an answer for you, but if you become pregnant, we will take care of you. And we've had Uh, seven pregnancies in SCAD patients after their initial SCAD, and we've done well. But again, that's not enough. An NF7 does not give anyone any level of comfort. (laughs) Right, right. Um,
1: Would your advice be different for women who presented with an atherosclerotic process or
3: thrombotic coronary disease? I think given that we have a better understanding of the milieu Um, and the lower likelihood of a timely recurrence in someone who has atherosclerotic disease that's been treated, I would probably be much more comfortable advising that patient to go on and have a subsequent pregnancy, assuming that they had a normal ejection fraction and they were physically active and didn't have other reasons that I would caution them not to become pregnant. But again, I would ask them to stop their statin. And that is somewhat of a sticky issue in people that have active atherosclerotic coronary artery disease.
2: So, Dr. Wood, before we let you go, we have one more pressing question for you, if you don't mind sharing with us. What makes your heart flutter about cardio
3: obstetrics? So my heart flutters when on a return visit, I see a healthy mother with her beautiful young baby, and I know that that baby is going to grow up with a mom in its life.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Wood. We have learned such a tremendous amount about acute coronary syndrome and SCAD in pregnancy. It's a true honor to have you join us today. And you provide so much inspiration for so many of us who are hoping to further the field of cardioobstetrics and women's cardiovascular health generally. Priya, thank you for guiding us through such a wonderful discussion and for all the work you did to make this a, such a great episode. And thanks to everyone for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did.
6: Thanks for tuning in to the cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series, led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to CardioNerds. With our partner, WomenHeart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is WomenHeart? It was founded by and for women. WomenHeart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. WomenHeart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease... Each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart's Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists. And for the women under our care, this series aims to change that. Why? Because cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of maternal mortality. For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilized what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life, and presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, the role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to Cardio B, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase especially among women with known heart disease, and as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly to be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series? Raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the Cardio OB heart team. All you cardio need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you, either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and women heart champions and many of my patients be open to those insights and learning to learn more about women heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so or to offer to volunteer or donate go to womenheart.org thank you and enjoy the cardio ob series <laughs>